Are you ready? Are you ready? All right, that's better. George Bernard Shaw is, has been credited with a saying, if other planets are inhabited, then they must be using Earth for their insane asylum. <laughs> and while that does bring a chuckle, his comment does indeed reflect the mess that this world is in. And the mess is not getting any better. But you know what? It's a pattern that began way back in the beginning. In the beginning, God created it all. Heavens and the earth, everything on it. Including the first human being. And the only thing that God said wasn't good was the fact that the human being was single. So he divided the human being and made him male and female. And then he said, it's very good. So that now male and female, they are able to reproduce. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden had everything that they could ever need and probably ever want, including dwelling with God, walking in the presence of God on a daily basis. But because Eve was beguiled by that servant, serpent, that had been possessed by Lucifer, in my opinion. Adam, the first man, who had been created with dominion over creation in partnership with God, chose to disobey the one command that God gave him. Do not eat of the tree of, of, of knowledge of good and evil. In the day that you eat of it, you shall die. They ate. They were expelled from the Garden of Eden, lest they would eat of the tree of life and live on in continual spiritual death because the wages of sin is death. Cain and Abel were born. Cain, in a bit of fit of jealousy, killed his own brother. Instead of repentance, his heart became hard and he went out from the presence of the Lord and he led his family in rejection of God. And as he and his children and great-grandchildren continued to create culture and cities, culture spiraled ever downward into the darkness of life without God. However, God gave Adam and Eve another son, Seth. And for a period of time, Seth and his son Enos were people who began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, when Adam and Eve sinned and then God came in and Adam, where are you? And confronted them and God pronounced a curse on the serpent and in so doing so a curse on Satan himself. And then he gave the consequences to Adam and Eve. Do you remember what he said to the serpent? Genesis 3.15. The last thing he said, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Her offspring will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Your offspring will crush his head. The first promise of a Messiah. The first promise of a Redeemer. When Cain was born, it appears that they named Cain with the thought that this is the one. This is the one that God has promised is going to crush the serpent's head. 
crush Satan's head. But we all know how that worked out. Then they thought it was Seth. He would be the fulfillment. But as Seth's family line went on, they merged with Cain's family line through marriage. And the people as a whole on the planet became more sinful and more rebellious and more apostate before God. To the point that God said, I am sorry that I created man. I repent. What was very good. Now every imagination of their hearts is evil all the time. I mean, he used some absolute words. Every and all the time. Their heart is evil. I'm going to give the planet a bath. And every living creature is going to die. Except there was one man in the line of Seth who was righteous and found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah. Noah stood as a righteous man in the midst of the darkness. God called Noah. I got a job for you. And Noah did everything that God commanded. God called Noah, and Noah did everything God commanded. So God saved Noah, his three sons, three daughters-in-law, and Noah's wife in the ark that they built according to God's plan. Now, you would think that when these people had survived this annihilation of everything on the planet, that it would be centuries before anybody thought anything about disobeying God. Not to be the case. It didn't take very many years at all. Just enough years to grow some grapes and to drink too much of the wine that he created. Passed out drunk in his tent, stark naked. Drunk people do crazy things. Ham walks in on his dad and finds it quite humorous, ridicules him, tries to get his brothers to ridicule him. They won't. They cover him up without looking. And when Noah finds out what has happened, he speaks words to each of his three sons. Jephthah, may you ever be increased. Ham, Canaan, your fourth son, is going to be cursed, and he'll be a servant to these other two. And then he blessed the God of Shem. And the inference there's, Shem, you're going to be the one who carries on this godly line. From out of your fang is going to come the one who's going to crush the serpent's head. Canaan's sons, well, they all began to do what God said in a way. They began to move, but when one of Canaan's sons, Nimrod, came to Shinar, the plain of Shinar, which is now, which became Babylon. He said, uh, you know what? I think we ought to all stay right here. Now Nimrod was a, a mighty man, a mighty hunter is what the scripture says, which means he was a person with great influence over people, one way or another. He said, let's build a tower that will reach into the heavens. It was going to be a tower to worship 
a deity of their own choosing. Their plan was to make a name for themselves so as to not be dispersed over the face of the earth. Remember, God told them, I want you to be dispersed. He said, they said, we're going to make a name for ourselves so that we will not be dispersed over. It seems to me the plan for the Tower of Babel was to create a God to their own liking. They wanted to create a God to their own liking. A God that they could manipulate the way they wanted to manipulate. They could believe what they wanted to believe about that God. God came down to see what they were doing and he said they're all in unity and nothing will stop them from what they're doing. Except this. I'm hoping for replays when we get to heaven. The next day they wake up and they're all speaking different languages. They had all been unified in purpose and plan, but now they could not communicate with one another. And so things became very difficult. And lo and behold, they began to disperse the way that God had told them to. Some of them moved into North Africa. Some of them moved into to Europe, Mesopotamia, and Arabia, and Asia, and even crossing over to North and South America. But what happened when they left is they still took the Babylonian heart, the heart looking for gods of their own liking. Paul describes that process that keeps repeating itself in history over and over and over. People forsaking the only living God and creating for themselves a God to their own liking. Unfortunately, it even happens in some Christian churches. We want to mold Jesus the way that we want Jesus. We want the Father to be the way we want the Father instead of living by what the Word says. Paul described it in Romans chapter 1. And it's a map you could have put on history on almost any place in history. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as a God or give thanks to Him. But they came futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, if you've read Isaiah and Jeremiah, you know that both of them make fun of people. They say, a man goes out in the morning, he chops down a tree, and from that tree he makes firewood to warm his house. He makes firewood to cook his meal. And from the other chunk, he makes a God to call out to and to pray to. dead tree becomes a god or they say piece of stone going on verse 24 therefore god gave them up in their lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about god for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator does that sound familiar 
Worship the, serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. In other words, God said, okay, you're going to suffer the consequences of your choices. God put some laws into effect. Whatever you sow, that's what you're going to reap. You sow to the flesh, you'll reap of the flesh. You sow to the Spirit, you'll reap of the Spirit. Paul was talking about the world he was living in. He was talking about the world that preceded him. He was talking about the world we live in today. In Noah's day, it kept getting darker and darker in terms of men with relations. And then the dispersion of families and clans from the Tower of Babylon did not cause man to repent and draw close to God. While there was always a few faithful, God always has a remnant. God always has a remnant. The bulk of people became idol worshipers. But in the midst of the darkness, the spiritual darkness, God called a man. In the midst of the spiritual darkness, God called a man. Last Sunday we looked at the first nine verses of chapter 11 of Genesis. We did an overview of chapter 10. Chapter 10 we talked about was the, the table of nations, showing which nations came out of which sons of Noah. Um, as we go into chapter 11 now, uh, we have another genealogy of Shem. Back in chapter 10, we had a quick thing about Shem, but now we're going to get the, the other version of his uh, family line. And he's going to come down to Eber, from where we get the word Hebrew, and then his son Peleg. Because it was through the line of Eber and Peleg that God called a man through whom he was going to fulfill the promise to crush the serpent's head. It is through the man he calls that he's going to bless the nations of the world. In fact, it should say all the nations of the world because that's what God said. All the nations of the world. So we're going to read this second genealogy in chapter 11. First one had to do with Shem. Don't you love reading genealogies? We'll skip the first one because I don't want to see all those names. But the second one. Beginning in verse 27. Now we've come to the end of the introduction. Now we're at the message, okay? Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah in the land of his kindred, in the Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah the daughter of Hiran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran. 
his grandson and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Verse 27 marks the end of the primeval period and the beginning of the patriarchal period of history. I gave you a long word to have to write and learn how to spell today. Patriarchal period of history. The first ten and a half chapters of Genesis, we get a quick overview of hundreds of years. Hundreds. We talk about the creation, the couple, the multiplication of people, then the annihilation of the people with the judgment of the flood, then the repopulating of the earth and the continual spread of sin and darkness all over again. In the rest of the book of Genesis, beginning with verse 27 to the end of the book, now we're going to deal with one family and their descendants of this one man, Abraham, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then we're going to throw Joseph in for good measure. The author of the scripture talks about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the Jews. They claim that we serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the rest of Genesis is about their story and then Joseph. We're going to hang out here for a couple of of weeks in this section right here. We won't go real fast. And I just want to make a few observations this morning. And they're not necessarily in a chronological order or any particular order. It was just as they came on my heart as I was typing this message and trying to put together, glean things from everything that I've read for the last couple of weeks. Number one, God called Abram in Ur. He called him in Ur. They went forth from Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur was an ancient city which is, was about 186 miles southeast of modern Baghdad. It was a city that was right on the bend of the Euphrates' original course, river course. Senator Leonard Woolley did some major excavating of the original site between 1923 and 1934, and there were some incredible things that they were able to unearth there in, in that area of the Middle East. Ur was a leading center of moon worship. Ur was a leading center of moon worship. One of the ruins that they were able to um, dig up and is there today, my understanding, is a ziggurat of Yur-Nama, a ziggurat dedicated to the god Nana. Now, Egypt had its pyramids, you know, blew up. Mesopotamia had their ziggurats. It was a thing that they would build a level, then they would put another level that would kind of step up. And this one has three different levels to it. Um, there's a picture. I thought I was going to show it on the screen, but it wouldn't cross over into the program, um, and I didn't have time to change it. Uh, but it had a stairway going to the top, and on top was this little, like a chapel made out of silver that was dedicated to Nana, the moon god. The archaeologists have found 
a lot of evidence to indicate that the worship of this moon god included human sacrifice. And in one of the books that I was reading this week, some, one of these archaeologists dug up something where there was a final resting place for somebody who was royalty. And they are laying in, in this place and the body has been preserved evidently from fine embalming that they did in those days, but, and, and clothed in, in all the fine garments and spread out around this body with 75 of the servants that because this person died, the sacrifice of these 75 servants was made and they were all buried or all laid to rest in the same place in the worship of Nana, the moon god. Abram spent 75 years of his life in earth. And he spent it there as one who was involved in the worship of Nana. Abram was an idol worshiper. You say, really? The father of faith was an idol worshiper? Well, if I hadn't read it in the Bible, I wouldn't say that. But Joshua 24.2 said this. Joshua was giving his last farewell speech to the Israelites after they've gone into the land of Canaan and they've taken and wiped out many of the Canaanites and taken the cities. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm just a bit surprised about this fact of Abram worshiping idols. You remember when we read the story of Noah, the whole world is, their hearts are wicked. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord because Noah was a righteous man. Noah walked with God. But when God comes looking for a man, to carry on the promise, a man to bless. He finds a man living in an ungodly city, a man who has likely been to the shrine for Nana, the moon god, and at some level gave worship to this man-made deity. You know what it tells me? It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. When God calls you and you say yes, everything becomes new. All things are passed away. All things become new. Doesn't matter who you were or what you were, now you're a child of God. Because you heard the call and you responded and said yes. Oh, God's amazing grace. God's amazing grace. I'm thankful for God's amazing grace. Amen? God called Abram to be a father of a great nation. If you go on to chapter 12, verse 2, and I will make you a great nation. I will make you a great nation. That's the promise he makes. Abram, I want you to leave 
this land, with your, leave your father, and I want you to go to a place I will show you. I will make you a great nation. Abram means exalted father. That's what his name means. God would eventually change it to Abraham, which means the father of many nations. But when God called Abram the exalted father at the age of 75, how many children did Abram have? Zilch, zero, nada. Because, letter D, Sarai could, have no, could not have children. She was barren. She was barren. So, if we were the committee that was to deciding who shall we, who shall we call to be the person to start a great nation through which we can bless the whole world. How are we doing so far in terms of this candidate? An idol worshiper, married to a woman who is fer not fertile, childless, and to top it off, they're not spring chickens. They're already 75 and 65. From a human point of view, they may have been the least qualified candidates who applied for the job. And I know they didn't apply for it, but I'm trying to keep you awake. When you're trying to figure out life in this world and the seeming unending chaos and darkness, do not forget this. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8. And nine. God said, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. He's a whole lot smarter than we are. Not only that, because he's omnipresent and because he's eternal. He knows what's going to happen down the road. Abram had a God encounter. He had a God encounter. I know that might be awkward. You might want to say he had an encounter with God. I want to leave it the way I said it. He had a God encounter. He didn't go looking for God. God came looking for him. The call to leave Ur and to travel to a place God would... It happened in a moment when God revealed himself. God revealed himself to Abram. And how do I know that? Because the Bible tells me so. In Acts chapter 7, Deacon Stephen, who is supposed to be distributing turkey baskets to the widows of the church, he preaches everywhere he goes. And he's preaching and people are being converted to be followers of Jesus Christ. And the Jewish Sanhedrin does not like it at all. They bring him in and put him on trial. And he begins his last sermon. It was so good, they stoned him to death. But he begins his last sermon with this. In verse 2, Acts 7. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. 
and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, go into the land I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. He's talking about there, right there in Jerusalem and Israel, Judea. Oh, how I wish I had the details of the encounter that God had with Abraham. But I suppose if we had the details, somebody would make a spiritual formula out of it and say, this is the way that you have to meet God. So God didn't give us the details. We'll catch them later. We do know how Saul of Tarsus had a God encounter. Remember, he's on the way to Damascus with papers to arrest Christians, people of the way, to put them in jail and even to put them to death for their heresy. When suddenly a bright light from heaven knocks him to the ground and a voice said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it? Who are you? Well, I'm Jesus, the one you said that's dead. Now, that's my paraphrase. The one that you said is not real. Oh, Lord, what do you want me to do? And that man had a 180. He went from pursuing Christians to doing everything he could do to pursue Jesus Christ and make more Christians all around Europe and Asia Minor. Abram had been raised to pursue the moon god Nana. But when he had an encounter with Yahweh, everything changed. His encounter with God must have been so real that he shared it with his family. And his dad said, well, you're going, we're going with you. Lot said, I'm going with you. And a whole bunch of them began to move. They don't know where they're going. They just know they're supposed to go. Go west, young man. Go west. And they start step by step. Abram's obedience to God's call was a monumental act of faith. A monumental act of faith. The evidence from scriptures that before his God encounter, a pagan idol worshiper, 75 years old, probably very financially secure, settled in the city of Ur. We don't read of anybody else in the community hearing from God. On the basis of hearing God speak to him, Abram risked everything to follow the call of God. He packed it all up and said, we're going this direction because that's the way God told me to go. He risked everything. I'm not sure that any of us here today have done anything comparable to what Abram did. And we've all made some small sacrifice at some level to be in church on Sunday or something like that. But there are people around the globe today making commitments just like Abram did. I'm going to put it all on the line. This past week, in my mail, there was a letter from our friend George C. And uh, he asked us to pray for a certain young pastor. Well, I pastor, I don't know if he's young or not. He has three names. I'll just give you his first name because 
the other two are Indian names. And I don't know the interpretation. So, But Pastor Rom, his first name, serving in North India, a, a man who was raised Orthodox Hindu, came to find Jesus Christ, got educated as a believer in Jesus Christ, became a pastor and a leader of Grace International in North India. On October the 29th, I believe it was a Sunday, I know it was a Sunday, he was badly beaten by enemies of the gospel of Christ. The reason? He and his congregation refused to contribute money to a Hindu festival that worships the sun god. Because he refused to contribute and taught those believers to refuse to do the same, an angry mob beat him and then took him to the police station where he was arrested on the charge of, of illegally, illegal conversion of people into Christianity. It's against the law to proselyte people into Christianity in India. Several of the brothers from Grace International in India rallied around him and secured his release and the drop of all the charges, thank the Lord. But such incidents are so common in northern India and other places around the globe where the Hindus and the Muslims are doing everything they can to stop out Christianity. George writes, the ultimate goal of radical Hindus is to take believers in Christ back to the Hindu fold by force. But the brothers and sisters in the churches of North India are standing firm in their love for Jesus. They are paying a heavy price for the love of Christ. Pray for them all. Pray for them all. So this week in your prayer, pray for Brother Ram and all the Indian believers being persecuted for Jesus' sake. Abraham was not persecuted by radical Hindus. But he's leaving his home at 75 years of age and beginning a journey into the unknown. Abram happily followed God's plan by faith. By faith. By faith. We know it was by faith because of the writer of Hebrews tells us. He uses Abraham as an example of what faith looks like. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, that's the chapter that says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Biblical faith possesses a future certainty. A future certainty. The assurance of things hoped for. Now, when it says hope for, it's not like I'm hoping that I get a new car for Christmas, a new rifle for Christmas. I'm hoping that. No, we're talking about my hope is there is life in Jesus Christ and life eternal. It's not a I wish thing. It's a positive. This is the hope. This is what causes me to go on knowing it is a sure thing. The assurance of things hoped for. A future certainty. I have a future certainty that I know that all things will work together for my good. Because I love God. 
and am called according to His purpose. And He said He would cause everything to work together that I might be more like Him. That I have that future certainty. Whatever comes, God will use it. Biblical faith possesses a visual certainty. Conviction of things not seen. A visual certainty. Conviction of things not seen. Which brings me down to the third part. Abraham had a dynamic certainty. Though he could not see it with his eyes, in his heart he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, there is a city whose builder is God. And I'm on my way to that city and I'm going to keep my face turned towards that city. Though I can't see it with my physical eye in my heart, I know it's there, and that's where I'm going, and I'm believing God, and I'm going to trust Him every step of the way from here to there. As we read the story in Hebrews 11, he went to Canaan with confidence. I'm going to see God's promises fulfilled. According to Hebrews 11.8, Abram obeyed immediately. He obeyed immediately. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. That's not my forte. If I'm going to go somewhere... I'd kind of like to know where am I going. I'd like to plan the trip a little bit. I'm not real spontaneous. And I hope the Lord's not listening to me because he might put me to the test. (laughs) He went out not knowing where he was going. His obedience was an outward sign of his inward faith. His obedience to go was an outward sign of his inward faith. We sing the chorus from time to time, step by step, lead me. And that's what it was, step by step. He only had enough for today. This is where we're going to go for today. Faith and obedience are inseparable in our relation to God. Faith and obedience are inseparable in our relation to God. If you read Hebrews chapter 11, the whole chapter, and all these people in the hall of faith, every one of them are in that hall of faith because they obeyed God. And their obedience showed their faith. The next statement will sound pretty harsh. But I'm going to say it anyway. We must never imagine we have faith if we do not obey. If we, we must never imagine we have faith if we do not obey. Jesus said, if you love me, you will do what? Keep my commandments. Faith and obedience go together. 
There are far too many people in the church today who believe grace negates the necessity of obedience. Because the scripture says, where, grace abound, or where sin abounds, grace abounds so much more. Remember Paul makes that mention in Romans? He said, some of you are going to say, well, when we should keep on sinning, so grace abounds. And he said, God forbid, because God sets you free from sin. If you submit yourself to sin, you become a slave to sin. So, obedience. So if you say you have faith in God and you're disobeying God, you're deceiving yourself. That was for all the people who weren't here today, right? Faith is a matter of trusting God completely and doing what He says. Faith is a matter of trusting God completely and doing what He says to do. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7? I'll remind you in a moment. A week or so ago, my friend who pastors the Kathlamet of First Assembly of God Church. We've been friends for 50 years. He was in town, had to wait for something to pick up for, uh, a prescription someplace here. So he just stopped in my office and we talked for about an hour about the Bible. And we spent about 30 minutes talking about Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only those who do the will of my Father. And he said, they're going to say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out devils in your name? We as preachers, that kind of really, it is one of the most sobering passages of Scripture. Jesus teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Obedience is an expression of my faith, okay? If I say I have faith and don't obey, my faith not properly placed. Verse 7 said this in Hebrews 11, By faith Noah, being warned of God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household, by this he condemned the world and became heir of righteousness that comes by faith. We read verse 8 just a moment ago. Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. The writer of Hebrews wants us to get the message loud and clear. Both men's faith produced obedience. Both men's faith produced obedience. By Noah's faith and obedience, a family was saved. Thus, mankind was saved, and God was able to start all over after the flood. Abraham's faith produced a family, an extension going clear back to Eve, whereby the whole world could be saved through the faith in the one who would come to crush the head of the serpent for the final time. So number four, an action step, be a doer of the word. Be a doer of the word. A doer of the word. James said, do not be a hearer of the word only, but be a doer of the word. 
He said, by my works, I'll show you my faith, by my obedience. Number five, as I look at this story, I am reminded of this. God's ways are not man's ways. God's ways are not man's ways. Going back to the Tower of Bible, being built on the plains of Shinar, it seems that at least one of the leaders, um, Nimrod, a mighty man, a mighty hunter, a man who was able to move masses, a charismatic speaker, gathered a great gathering. Abraham and Sarah, in contrast, probably an average couple with no children up to this point in time. But God chose them. The people of the Tower of Babel, they wanted to make a name for themselves. That's what it said. We're going to make a name for ourselves. Part of the promise that you'll read in when you get to chapter 12, verse 1, 2, and 3, 4, God says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and give you a great name. I will make your name great. And he did indeed. The builders of the Tower of Babel were using the wisdom and the understanding of men. Abraham and Sarah, Noah, trusted the word of God. The tower was built by human pride and defiance, the nation of Israel was built by the grace and the power of God in spite of human weaknesses. God called a man. For all day yesterday, maybe started on Friday, that phrase, God called a man, just kept running through my mind. and I would find myself running through the scriptures and running through history. With that thought in mind, God called a man. God called a man. God called a man to be the vessel, the tool, to keep that promise going. One day, there'll be a Messiah who will crush the serpent's head. I thought about Moses. He didn't want to be called. He'd been hiding for 40 years when he tried to deliver the Israelites in his own power and discovered, whoops, wrong thing to do. Forty years. And then he has a God encounter at the burning bush. He became one of the greatest leaders the world ever knew. But he was also, the scripture said, the meekest man. He was the most humble. Because he came to understand he was totally dependent on God. Remember when God said to him, <coughs> after the golden calf incident, you just take him and go. I'm not going with you. And Moses said, if you don't go, I don't go. He understood, I'm called of God, but I'm also equipped of God. And if God doesn't go, I'm not going. I thought about Joshua. He was called to take Moses' place. Have you ever thought about how intimidating that would be? It's easy for me to think about that because I stand here where my dad stood for 50 or 60 years. 
I think about six times after they're done mourning for Moses. God says to Joshua, be strong, be of good courage. Be strong, be of good courage. I've called you. I'll be with you. I'll go forth before you. What about Gideon? The angel shows up and said, you mighty man of valor. And my paraphrase is, you got to be kidding me. That's not me. I'm hiding back here. But God called Gideon. And with 300 men, they wrapped, I don't know, 132,000 because of the power of God, David, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel. And just because you think God's chauvinist, don't forget Esther, who said, perhaps I've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And she was absolutely right. I could go on and on for quite a while. And maybe one day I'll preach a sermon from that God called and finish that sermon. It just keeps percolating in my mind. Is that a good word? Matthew 9. Jesus was going from city to city to village, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the kingdom of the gospel, healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And verse 37 of Matthew 9 said, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. An action step. Pray earnestly for God to call men and women today in to the harvest. Pray earnestly for God to call men and women today into the harvest field. I don't think I have to prove to anyone that we are living in perilous times. Powers of darkness, the demonic forces are destroying the fabric of society all around the globe. Now there are physical wars taking place in Russia and Ukraine and Israel and Gaza and other nations always fighting against others. The terrorists in, in, in Nigeria always coming. And, but there's a, a war that's far greater and far worse. And that's the war taking place in the spirit realm against principalities and powers that have blinded the hearts and minds of people and caused them to, to walk away from God but I read in the Word, when the enemy comes in like a flood, God will raise a standard against him. God will raise the flag of the church that he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But it calls for you and I to do what Jesus said, pray earnestly that God will send laborers into the field. Pray earnestly that God will raise up pastors, missionaries, evangelists. Pray that God will raise up godly bus drivers, godly carpenters, godly, godly lawyers, and godly politicians. 
The harvest field is not inside here. The harvest field is out there where we rub shoulders on a day-to-day basis. God, send laborers into the field. Send laborers into the field. Then when I ask you to do this, pray that young men and women have a God encounter. Pray that young men and women have a God encounter. One of the downsides of the affluence of this nation is young people do not understand I need God. They're able to go out and make money hand over fist, buy all kinds of stuff, more stuff, so they have to build bigger barns. But they're in desperate need of God. And I think what Jesus said is praying for the heart. Pray that young men and women have a God encounter. That God speaks to them in their dreams. That God speaks to them in the circumstances of their life. They come face to face with their immortality. And the mortality, I mean. Come face to face with their mortality. And if they want to be immortal, they need to find Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. That they have the kind of God encounter that turns them around 180 degrees. That the passion of their life is to love Jesus, worship Jesus, obey Jesus, a longing for Jesus. Pray for the salvation of souls. God called them in. And then as I was meditating on that, my mind went another direction. Now, if we were in Bible school and somebody was grading me on the way I put this message together, I wouldn't get a good grade as a sermon. But I really believe I do have a message at this point in in whatever you want to call this this morning. Isaiah 35, 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. The context goes on to say, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will leap like a deer, the mute will sing with joy, the deserts will break forth with springs of water, and there will be a highway to the presence of the Lord. My mind went to what Paul said in Galatians, in the fullness of time, God sent a man. It says God sent his son as a man to die on the cross for our redemption. Because God sent His Son, because the cross and the resurrection have already taken place, you can claim this promise today. Be strong, fear not. Your God will come with vengeance. He will come and save you. At this point in my typing, I felt like God gave me one sentence that somebody needs to hear today. Whether it was somebody in the first service, somebody in this service, or somebody online. Maybe it's just me. But I want you to to read this first part with me out loud. My God will bring me through. Anybody believe that? 
Didn't sound like anyone believed that. My God will bring me through. My God will bring me through. Whatever you're going through, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you can count on this fact. He will come and save you. As I said earlier, He will cause everything to work to good. The good, the bad, the ugly, the things beyond. God, how in the world can you make anything out of this? My God will bring me through. And there's one more part to that sentence. And it will be right on time. It'll be right on time. It might not be the time that you ordered. But it will be in the perfect time, the perfect way, the perfect place. Because he is totally trustworthy. The story of Genesis thus far is God is at work to keep his word. In spite of the imperfections of humanity, he is at work to keep his promises for you and me. On this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection, we have this assurance. He's here. He lives in me. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. Be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come and save you. We're going to sing one more time before we close in prayer. Whom shall I fear? Because the God of angel armies, the God of angel armies, He's the one who walks with me. So there's nothing that will come against you that can prosper. If God is before you, who can be against you? We are more than conquerors. More than conquerors. So stand as we sing it one more time. Prayer.